Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Hi, welcome back, everyone. On this episode, a conversation with best-selling author Howard Bryant about his new book, Ricky, the life and legend of an American original available now from Mariner Books. Ricky Henderson is clearly the greatest leadoff hitter and one of the dozen or so most impactful players in baseball history. But his journey isn't as clean and as celebrated as, say, Michael Jordan, Derek Jeter, or Tom Brady, whose careers are defined by team championships. Ricky's career is legendary for its electric peak in the 1980s and the spectacular longevity that allowed him to put up lifetime numbers that won't be approached anytime soon. He became known as one of the great characters of the game, along the lines of, say, Yogi Berra or Satchel Paige, but his path was at times a difficult one, and that's best exemplified by his time as a New York Yankee. Ricky Henderson was a Yankee from 1985 through June of 1989, parts of five seasons, but in terms of games played, about three and two-thirds seasons. None of those games were played in October playoff baseball, which hurts his overall legacy when viewed with other star players in New York. And even his regular season numbers here are not fully appreciated. So with that in mind, as Howard Bryant's new book tells the life story of Ricky Henderson, this discussion highlights the Yankee years with massive statistical success, but because it coincided with the unraveling of the Yankees organization on so many levels, mainly from the top down, this period isn't viewed with nearly the scope it deserves. So for a deeper look into one of the game's greatest players ever, here's my conversation with Howard Bryant, author of Ricky, the life and legend of an American original. Howard, I want to really focus on Ricky's New York years with you. And it's actually, I, I love, the, I did the math, okay? So this is <laughs> this is pretty cool. You, you have 77 pages in this book devoted to Ricky's tenure in New York from the time he was traded to the Yankees to the time he was traded away, which is about 20% of the book. Uh, judging by his games played, 19% of his career was with the Yankees. So I think <laughs> that just right. I did it on purpose. I knew exactly how many pages needed to be allocated based on the number of years he played in New York. I think the fascinating part is here. You basically played other parts of five seasons because of time missed and the trade in season. It's basically three and two thirds uh, seasons worth in New York. And they were phenomenal years. If you look at it and it's, it's probably not appreciated enough for a variety of reasons, which you're going to get into. But before we get to that, um, you know, Ricky, was Oakland made, not just as a player, but he's from that area, uh, grew up in that area. And you devote a lot of the early portion of this to kind of the history of Oakland and how people like 
Ricky Henderson, Dave Stewart kind of became who they became because of where they grew up. We're all products of the environment that we grew up in, but there's obviously something unique to the Bay Area, how it was populated and how Ricky became Ricky. Yeah, no question. And I think that the the Great Migration is such a big piece of the United States and the United States history. Obviously, it's the greatest mass movement of people in the country's history. How did people get to go you know, how did they end up where they were? How did these cities become what they became? And we talk about it in so many different areas. We talk about it in terms of how Detroit became Detroit and Philadelphia and New York and Chicago, of course, and, and obviously in the Western migration, Los Angeles as well. But we never talk about it in terms of sports. We never make that link in terms of how players got to be where they came from. And and we talk about these great high schools, especially the great McClyman's High School in Oakland, City of Ch- and the School of Champions, Bill Russell, Frank Robinson, Beta Pinson, Kurt Flood, all in that first wave in the 1950s. And then later on in Oakland, you've got Dave Stewart, Lloyd Mosby, Gary Pettis, Ricky, so many players over there. And so what I wanted to do was sort of trace the origins of where they all came from. And when you look at the, the origins of Oakland, it's of, of black Oakland, it's essentially Texas, Louisiana and Arkansas. And those three states from 1940 to the mid 60s changed everything in that city, changed the complexion, changed the politics, changed everything. The great Black Panthers, the obviously controversial and um, influential political party. Bobby Seale is from Beaumont, Texas, from Port Arthur, Texas, right next to Beaumont, where Frank Robinson is from. Huey Newton is from Monroe, Louisiana, right next to where Bill Russell was from, and they end up being neighbors in Oakland. You've got Joe Morgan from Texas, Kurt Flood's from Texas. Then you have, you know, Dave Stewart's from Louisiana, Bip Roberts, Louisiana, all of these players, Ricky and Mosby from Arkansas. And of course, Paul Silas, the great Boston Celtic from Arkansas and his first cousins, the Pointer Sisters, they all lived in the same (laughs) house over on Adelaide Street around the corner from McClyman's High. So this mass movement of people essentially changed and shaped the entire city. And so for me, I thought it was really important when you're getting into the roots of how people become what they are, you got to go back to the to the origins and. And I I was, you know, you could have done it with any city as well, but I just thought that it was a really important piece of the city's history. Well, and Ricky grew up and many of the other athletes you're talking about came of age in the civil rights era and then into the 80s when Ricky is really doing his thing, it takes on a a different meaning. I'm going to get to that in a little bit, but before we get to Ricky in New York, as he becomes a star in Oakland, it's pretty clear a central figure for him is a guy that many Yankee fans are familiar with. And it's Billy Martin, uh, manager with him in Oakland and then later in New York, too. But I'm, I found the roots of that relationship pretty interesting because it seems that in the beginning, neither one really realized how important they were going to be to each other before they became. I don't even know if they necessarily learned to trust each other, but they basically understood they were good for each other. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, it's 100 percent accurate. And I think that it's really Mike Norris was the guy when Billy first came to Oakland in 1980. It was Mike Norris and 
and and Billy who were really close. And one of the things about this book that I really enjoyed digging into was those relationships. I mean, always, you know, books are always like that. You actually have the time and space to really say, you know, to dig into things unlike an 800 word newspaper piece. And so Ricky was in his first full season when Billy takes over in 1980. And Ricky didn't trust anybody. One of one of the staples of Ricky Henderson talked to any newspaper person who tried to interview him. Ricky was extremely guarded. Ricky was extremely distrustful and, the, you know, of the of the media. But it was also that trickled down, of course, to the coaches as well. And one of the things he used to tell Mike Norris all the time was that I can't get close to a manager. If I get close to a manager and he trades me or releases me, I'm going to kill him. Right. I'm going <laughs> to I don't want to I can't handle that. And so but Billy was really persistent. Now, some of the argument is, is that Billy was really the first manager, maybe Tom Treblehorn in the minor leagues with Ricky, but Billy was the first guy who knew what he had. And Billy's one of the most brilliant baseball people ever. And he saw the way he liked to play the game, the way he saw the game as, as essential to winning. Ricky embodied all of that leadoff speed, you know, on base percentage in terms of his eye, you know, really got the action going. And he knew he needed to cultivate this player. If I'm going to be successful here, I need to know that guy. So it was Mike Norris who really put those two together. And of course, everyone knowing how volatile Billy was now, suddenly Billy and, and Ricky are out on the party circuit. They're out, you know, Billy and Ricky would tell me you know, a number of times I saw Billy get his butt whooped. I mean, just out there fighting and stuff. And so, but the other thing about Billy and Ricky was that Billy played favorites. And one of the problems that you had if you were if you weren't a star with Billy is that he didn't really do right by you because you couldn't help him win. But if you could help him win, he gave you whatever you wanted. And in Ricky's case, in Ricky's case, it was absolutely, um, you know, beneficial for two reasons. One. Billy had his engine. And two, for the first time, Ricky had a manager who just let him do what he did, go out and do be Ricky Henderson, whatever that was going to be. We know how good you are. And very few of us in our jobs have a boss who say, go out and do what you do best. Usually it's an employer employee relationship. So Billy, as his history showed you ends up flaming out in Oakland. Uh, he leaves Ricky becomes the star that Billy envisioned. He sets the stolen base record in 82. Uh, he's by 83 he's perennial all-star and one of the stars of the game. Uh, and Billy's back in New York, managing the Yankees. He flames out there again, but he's still on the payroll. And so when Ricky is getting closer to free agency and making money as star players in the eighties are starting to make, Oakland, the Oakland A's ownership um, pretty much decides that they're not getting involved in that. And it's time to move on from Ricky. So Billy's whispering in George Steinbrenner's ear and everybody else, the Yankees, this is the player that's going to help Don Mattingly, Willie Randolph, Ron Guidry, all the stars in the 1980s, Dave Winfield, and help put them over the top. So Billy's here whispering in his ear. He's not manager yet, but Ricky comes to New York, 1984, December of 84 and 85. Howard, looking back on the numbers and the stories that you're writing about in the book, too, it amazes me how we don't talk about that 85 season as much as we should, because it is one of the handful. It's one of, of the great seasons. <laughs> it's the last 
half century, right? Yeah. And I and I frame it this way that I, I just you know I looked this up and I'll let you speak to this, but um, you know, Reggie gets the Reggie treatment because. 1977, not because of the 30 homers, 100 RBIs, it was because of the three homers in the World Series, and they win the championship. But from a more objective, more uh, modern lens, uh, Reggie's war in 1977 is 4.5, okay? Don Mattingly won the MVP with that magnificent 85 season, which we all talk about, was 6.5. In 1985, Ricky Henderson's war was 9.9. He should have buried everybody in MVP voting, I've seen two comparable seasons from Alex Rodriguez, 2005, 2007, which I thought were the best offense seasons I've seen. But obviously there's a PED taint to that, which, you know, we have to live with. Ricky Henderson put up one of the most, one of the best first seasons in New York, one of the best seasons in New York, and it didn't end in any sort of championship parade. It was magnificent start to finish, though. Yeah. And you score 186. I'm sorry, you score 146 runs in 143 games after missing nearly the first month of the season. I mean, that is the thing with Ricky. He was unbelievable in in that year and and steals 80, you know, goes 80 for 90 in terms of base stealing. He, He was everything. And the problem with with those years and those years are really important, Sweeney. And it's one of the reasons why there's so much devoted to New York, because because you do have all of that. There are so many different things that you need to explore. And I felt like, number one, you had the Billy Martin Ricky relationship. And it was Billy telling Ricky, even when they were in New York, even when they were in Oakland, if you want to be a superstar recognized as a superstar, there's only one place to play. And this is while they're playing for another organization. You have to be in New York and for you to be everything. And this is also a a secondary piece of this. We have to remember that we're also in the first 10 years of free agency. Yeah. Free agency is brand new. People are losing their minds about how much money these guys are making. They cannot imagine when Ricky gets into the league in 79, he's making 17,000. Within three years, he's making 600,000 and he's mad that he's not getting Mike Schmidt money. Yeah, which and was so the, about two million a year, which was yeah. about you know nearly two. I guess it was about two million. You're right, and so that kind of money has the fans insanely angry. That that this is what the sport has become, and especially when you have players who aren't homegrown making that money. Now you have to get used to these new guys coming in, being the face of your franchise. That part is, is still a thing, by the way. It's still you a thing. Accomplish it in this uniform, it's 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 not part of your story. That's right. You had to be drafted, you know, by this team or be Reggie. Yeah. <laughs> and just change everything. And that's why re- the Reggie standard is so impossible to meet. And so with Ricky, now you've got this force coming into this team that hasn't won in a few years. Of course, every other team would take having not won in six years a big deal. You know, as they're like, we'll take that. But the idea that you were going to have a new player come in to New York and take over because now Reggie is gone. He's in Anaheim. And Winfield, it hasn't happened yet. This is a powerhouse franchise. It's a powerhouse team. You've got Ricky, Willie Randolph, Mattingly, Winfield, Baylor. Oh my good. I mean, really powerful house, powerhouse yeah. team. But it's really, it's, it's everything is marred in New York 
by two things that we don't talk about because George Steinbrenner has been rehabilitated because of the Tory years, because now they won again. They had another dynasty. We don't talk about the Billy George relationship, how it really did the daily effect that all of that fighting and all of that turmoil had on that team. And we also don't talk about collusion. The fact that those teams could have been so much better had they George and the rest of the league not conspired to to not get the best players. So they could have gotten more pitching. They could have made some different moves. The amazing thing about Billy and, and Ricky in the Yankee years is that with that team, as good as they were. For all the years that Ricky was in New York, 85 to 89. They never had a sole share of first place. They never had a yeah. partial share of first place in September. Yeah. For one day over four years. Yeah. And of course, that, you know, that level of, of uh, futility, put it that way, or disappointment is going to obscure all individual numbers, even Mattingly's in a lot of ways. Yeah. But people love Donnie. They just don't, they don't refer to it for the dominance that, he, that it was. Well, he stayed there and he finished his career there. And, you know, there was there's there's also this uh, twinge of sadness. Yes. Mattingly because of the way his career turned with an injury Um, and like injury is really part of this is an important factor, too. And I'm just thinking about now the contrast between how Mattingly was portrayed injured and how Ricky was portrayed injured, because in 1987, he suffers a series of hamstring injuries that really limit his playing time under 100 games. Now. He's treated a lot differently here, and it's it's part of the fans' relationship. It's part of the media relationship, which I want to get into in a little bit. But it was all about questioning whether or not he wanted to play. And this is something – listen, reputations are hard to shake. He started to get this reputation in Oakland. It was – and it followed him to New York once he got through that great 85 season, even parts of that when you're missing some games. Um, but his 87 season is marred by these hamstring injuries when – you have people even in that clubhouse whispering that, hey, listen, does he really want to play? We could use him because 80% of Ricky is better than 100% of somebody else. But I'd argue that in this case, it probably isn't because think about what we know who Ricky Henderson is. He's all about his legs, both his power and his speed all come from his legs. And if they're compromised, even going out there at 80%, you're probably not getting a good enough version of him yet. We come back to early in your book, you talk about how he predicted like he wanted to be the greatest base dealer of all time before he ever set foot in a in a major league game. So there are things that drive Ricky to want to be the greatest, yet there are people questioning whether or not he wants to play. Those two things don't add up. No, they don't add up. And that's the difference between Ricky and so many other players is that it's the personality that we got. You know, we'll get to this in a second, obviously. But one of the reasons why this book was so much fun to write was I was thinking about Ricky's arc. How does a player, if you go back to the day by days and you go back to the 1980s, as we're doing now. Ricky's one of the most unpopular players in the game. He's mm-hmm. a great player. He's a phenomenal player. He's an electric player. Exciting. And the fans love him. But he's also extremely polarizing. And so part of the reason why I wanted to do this book is I wanted to also tell a story of how somebody could go from one of the most disliked players to what we see in in him now, which is sort of this combination of Yogi Berra and Satchel Paige and this legend and this myth of is this story true or is that story true? And we all have so much fun with it. But if you really go back and look, 
it all goes back to money. It goes back to Ricky losing an arbitration in 1984 to Sandy Alderson when he had already beaten Sandy once before, but he lost this time. He wanted 1.2 million. They offered him 950,000. He was insulted. And because he was insulted, now he wasn't taking batting practice with everybody if he didn't really want to. Sometimes you'd go into the outfield and shag flies. Ricky wasn't out there. Ricky would come in, you know, to the field as late as possible. Maybe he wouldn't stretch with everybody. These were all protests. And he would come out and say it that, you know, this organization doesn't respect me. And that followed him to New York before he even got there. That if Ricky was upset, he was going to withhold services. That he was going to do certain things that reminded you that he was upset, which is really not that different than what we've seen from everybody else. Mm -hmm. But the way, but it was also the way Ricky was portrayed that this was a real anomaly. But when you go back and look at the actual numbers, he was out there. Yeah, but it was a culture right. thing. Back then, when you were an outfielder, you were expected to play 150 games, 155 games. Mm -hmm. Today, it's not like that. Today, the organization is holding you back. Today, they actually practice load management in baseball. Right. Ricky averaged 135 games for his career. And so, so those years really did, the years in Oakland, year before, you know, so three years previous to the 1987 injury, people are already wondering or they've decided that if Ricky doesn't, if Ricky's not happy, Ricky's not going to give you 100 percent. Now, that flies completely in the face with what he was actually producing. Yeah, because the numbers he was producing were unbelievable. And when you look at his New York years, he really only had one year where he was hurt. It was 87. He steals 93 bases the next year. And so, so this part of this to me is the relationship. And I think the other piece of this, the reason why Ricky didn't get the dispensation that other players get is because Ricky came to New York and Ricky offended the media and he offended the Yankees. Yeah. Let me stop you there. Cause this is what I want to get into because his dealing with the media. I mean, uh, we all talk about to this day and age, we talk about what it's like dealing with the New York media and mostly it's about the mass numbers, you know, yeah. you from Oakland or you come from St. Louis or wherever you come from um, you're used to dealing with a couple of people. Uh, you come to New York and all of a sudden there's 30 people in front of your locker after a game. It can be a little daunting uh, to deal with just sheer numbers of it. But um to take you back to the time frame that we're talking about, um, you're dealing with a media that at the time is mostly older white males, and they're trying to uphold the way the game used to be played in the old days because they grew up watching, you know, Mickey Mantle and all that stuff. And now you're coming to the day and age when, you know, the, the black players have been empowered. Uh, they realize what their value is. And Ricky is for uh, for Ricky, the value is the money and what he should what he is worth and deserves to be paid. Um, so you're talking about the salary explosion after free agency and after the 81 strike. But as I alluded to earlier, we're barely 20 years uh, past the civil rights era. And Ricky all of a sudden becomes this poster child for the athlete that the working class people, just want to be they want them to be just grateful enough for the opportunity to play yeah and there's a paternalism there, all the benefits of it so all of this is swirling as ricky is you know he's in his early 20s really mid-20s in the prime athletic part of his career and he's dealing with all of this 
trying to adjust to New York. Yeah, it's still and that's what was really hilarious to me looking at this, because in New York knows you protect your time. You protect your time. Our time is the best time. You talk to the old yeah, timers yeah. and they'll tell you that New York baseball in the 50s is still the greatest baseball ever. Mantle, Mays and Snyder and all of it. And, and yes, understood. That period is so volatile because you're in your first era of free agency. The owners and the players are fighting every year. It's still it's a TV game now but the newspaper men still hold on to it. And you got Dick Young and Red Smith are still alive Mm -hmm. and they're still writing. They still have a a pretty large platform. And so it's going to be really difficult for a new TV era player, especially a black player who has essentially been, you know, weaned on Muhammad Ali, which is what Ricky is talking about. He's the greatest and he's not afraid to tell you how much he's worth. And people don't, people didn't like that. And so Ricky doesn't get that dispensation for that reason. He also doesn't get dispensation because he didn't play the game. Ricky didn't cultivate writers. He didn't have any friends. He didn't, this is the reason why you strategically do want to have some sympathetic voices in, in media because they're the ones who were portraying your image to the public every day, every single day, especially yeah. in New York, 12 multiplied by 12 or 15 writers. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. So somewhere along the line, you have to have somebody who can make you look good to the masses. Doesn't exist that much today because a lot of players have their social media feeds. They can do it themselves. But back then... You absolutely needed an ally somewhere. And the, well, and the big difference here between Ricky and Reggie, you know, Reggie is a college educated player yep. who, who reveled in the idea that he was equal to the people that were standing in front and of him. Constantly remind you of his IQ. Yeah. Yeah. And he would, he, he wanted everybody around the locker to know that he was not, he was their uh, intellectual equal and their, um, and maybe superior. Right. That's right. So, now, Ricky is Ricky wanted to play college. Ricky wanted to play football. I want to play college football and professional football. Um, didn't have the grades to get through the college football part of it. So he ends up choosing baseball. So you're you're coming 3000 miles east and trying to navigate this landscape that Reggie did so brilliantly. I mean, and there was some good fortune in it, too, because they won the World Series his first year. But Ricky's struggling with that because there are, as you said, no sympathetic voices in front of him. That's right. And and on top of that, that now that the public and the writers have to deal with these black players making huge money coming in as the as the, the face of the franchise, because they you, you got to remember, while this is happening, you've already got Winfield and George fighting over that contract. So it's yeah. not it's a hostile place and they haven't won. And then something else happens as well. The Mets are winning. Right. And so now you've really got all kinds of volatility in New York and something is happening here that is beyond Ricky. But the one thing it does go back to that first day where New York wants to celebrate you and they want to bring you in and they want you to play the game and they want you to to revel in the great glory of the pinstripes. And what does Ricky say? Got no don't need no press now. Yeah. And so that made enemies immediately. And he never really recovered from that. Well, and something else that gets added to this, and it's kind of self-serving here, July 1st, 1987 is the day the WFAN went on the air. So in addition to seeing the words in print now, now you've got everybody calling from every local corner complaining that Ricky's not on the field because of his hamstrings and all this other stuff. It just adds another voice, another layer to the whole thing. Well, that's right. And now the voices are amplified. And thank you for not telling me this while I was working on the book, Sweeney, because that detail <laughs> needs to be in the book and it's not. So again, thank you for undermining <laughs> the work I'm trying to do. Talk about withholding information. Oh, you just and had so, it's like, just, just I could have asked, asked, right? And so, so yes, now you've created the talk radio boom. Now yep. drive time is a thing. And now these voices are, it's not just a newspaper game anymore. Now it's a newspaper radio TV game. And pretty soon, it, you know, if New York was, was overwhelming in of itself, now you've got amplification on top of that. And it really does, it changes everything. And so, and for Ricky's case, now you've got something even more uh, difficult. The Yankees as an organization are on the slide. They're on the way down yeah. because here they got worse mm-hmm. as a team that Ricky was there. And now Ricky's got this reputation. He's got the reputation of the guy you don't want to be. You don't want to be the guy 
who compiles the numbers, but is a losing ball player. And that's what Ricky is now. Ricky's got the reputation. Bill Madden wrote the column in New York. I don't remember what year it was. I think it was 88 or 80, 88 that Ricky's a brilliant player. But why do you always feel like you're being cheated when you watch him? Yeah. Why do you always feel like you need your money, that you want a refund? And he got destroyed for this, for this one year. And it turns out that he did have a hamstring pull. Turns out he, and, and I was thinking about this last night, actually, because I was watching a clip of uh, on YouTube of Ken Griffey Jr., another player whose hamstrings yeah. really undermined his career. But because Jr. had a much better reputation, people didn't, nobody ever would ever say that Ken Griffey Jr. was fake an injury or could have come back sooner. This is the dangerous territory that you get into. And, and Ricky, you know, really, he did not recover from this reputation until 89 when he finally goes into supernova, gets traded from the Yankees back to Oakland and puts on one of the great performances that any of us have ever seen. But to, you know, to, um, Back to the point of Ricky taking this criticism, you know, and not really allowing the media to get to know him to the point where they could tell this part of the story. And you can tell it better in hindsight, obviously. It hurt him to hear all this stuff. I mean, he maybe he didn't let the right people know or let it show, but to have his playing ability and his, and his health questioned and his desire to play questioned that really hurt him. Absolutely. It hurt him. And why wouldn't it? Because you're out there playing and people just don't think you're giving effort or they think you're faking injury. And while you're doing this, you're putting on, I mean, you've broken the Yankee single season stolen base record three times in the four, four and a half years that you were there. And so all of this is, it, it, it doesn't quite fit. And as Ricky finally said to me one day, how can you do everything I did? How can you steal 1400 bases? by not wanting to be out there. And right. it really is true. And it, and it shows you, and it goes back to what I was going to say before, that it was the numbers guys who really rehabilitated Ricky. It was the, the rise of the sabermetricians and the, the rise of analytics that said, wait a minute, this guy's even better than you thought. Because I remember when Ricky's 10th year, I think Ricky's 10th year was 88, beginning of the 89 season, that Ricky, his first full season, 89 first in a, you know what I'm saying here 10 yeah, years yeah. anyway so Ricky is at his 10th year eligible for the Hall of Fame and Sporting News writes a column about how many Hall of Famers are playing right now how many players if they retired right now are in the Hall of Fame Ricky's not mentioned yeah Ricky's not mentioned by Moss Klein who covers him in yeah. Newark at the Star Ledger and so it shows you how much People were paying attention to Ricky, the personality, as opposed to Ricky, the player. And to be clear, Howard, what Ricky is feeling isn't unique to Ricky because, you know, you've got stuff in there from Winfield and Don Baylor and Willie Randall. Other black players who played for the Yankees are feeling the same things that Ricky is. They're just not articulating it the same way. And they're probably doing it to insulate themselves for survival. Absolutely. And they they know how to play the game better than Ricky did politically. They know what flies and what doesn't fly. And and this is the whole thing. It's like people get all bent out of shape about dealing with these with these issues. And you have to deal with them. You have to deal with racial issues. You have to deal with gender issues. You have to deal with class issues. You have to deal with all of this because these are all the elements that are swirling around in your room. Can you imagine being in 
an office setting, not in an office setting, but in a work setting where you have as many different personalities as you had as, as the 88 Yankees or the 87 yeah. Yankees. Yeah. And then, you know, where the volatility between the front office and, and, and your workspace is as difficult as it is. And then on top of that, you bring in personalities like Dallas Green. Right? You bring in all these huge personalities and you've got a public that really does sort of resent you. And so if you're a black player, you are going through a remarkable change because the public is going through a remarkable change. They are going through, you know, you're only 10 years removed, 15 years removed from the civil rights movement. And you're used to a different black player. You're used to a, a player who is much more deferential to the public. Yes, sir. No, sir. Because they understand it. Now, this new generation is like, I don't have to do that. Right. The Ali I won that fight 20 years ago. Exactly. We already did that. And I don't. Why do I have to? you know, defer to you when you're here to, to watch me play. I'm the talent. So you're combining a few things. You're combining race, obviously, but you're also combining labor that the ball player is now not yeah. going to defer to you. They're like, hey, I mean, think about it. In 1975, the average American was making, I mean, the average ball player was making seven or eight times what the average American was making. Today, they're making 100 times what the what the average American is making. Mm -hmm. And so we're not peers anymore. I'm a superstar. You're not. And that relationship changes. Now, I'll sign an autograph if I want to. And I can just dismiss you. I can be rude to you or I can be nice to you. Totally total power difference. And in New York, you still have a large population who remembers the Brooklyn Dodgers in the neighborhood setting. That's they, right. They, they remember a totally different baseball yeah. and they're not old. I mean, right. if they were if you were 10 or 12 years old, say in 1950, by 1970, you're not you know, you're not ancient. You're a parent mm -hmm. and you're looking at this game. It's not what I remember. Right. And these players are even the great David Halberstam was talking about how surly and cold these players were. And, you know, the Steinbrenner years, the Steinbrenner years, really, in a lot of ways, nothing did Steinbrenner more of a service than the Joe Torre Yankees and the Derek yeah. Jeter Yankees mm -hmm. yeah. completely rewrote the way that George Steinbrenner's history would be would be seen. Now, he's still not in the Hall of Fame. But the combination of that and you've got a Mets team that people liked. Yeah. Really did change, you know, the, the surly, mean Yankees, you know, and you had these other players bringing in these free agent guys that never really fit the Ed Whitson's and Rick Rodens and these guys who were just kind of here and gone. And it just it was a really hostile time. I, I forgot to write this down, but you just reminded me like there's a contrast now with the, not only the Mets winning, but you've got Ricky and the personality he's bringing and the combative relationship with the media compared to the superstar that the Mets brought on the other side, Gary Carter, who's everybody's best friend. Everybody's buddy. Exactly. And everyone loves him. I think the way I put it in the book was it was the only time in his career Ricky was overmatched by a catcher. <laughs> and I forgot that line. That's you cool. know, and so. And it's true. These yeah. things matter. And if you're an organization, you need to you need to factor that in. It's not just how do you play? It's how do you play? Right. Not just how on the field. But how do you play in the public? And and yeah, Ricky shows up and he's like, yeah, it's Ricky time now. 
And somebody asks him about DiMaggio and he's like, you know, who's that? Right. He's just yeah, yeah. you can't do that in New York. Yeah. I mean, when I, you know, you know it. this has been your career. When I got to New York, what was the first thing you realized? Even as a, as a visiting writer, when you come in, as Mike Lupica always said so well, they sell memories over at that place. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you walk into Yankee Stadium, it's not just who's on the field today. It's deference to Ruth and Gehrig and DiMaggio and Mantle and all the championships that predated you. And you are part of a legacy. And if you disrespect that legacy you're not going to make it there and so ricky you know it's one of the things too now that we're talking about ricky now that he's a, a legend he's a made guy he's a hall of famer one of the things that he really had to do was mend a lot of fences hmm. there were a lot of people who remembered him as being the surly guy who was building his monument in the 1980s and which is why people want to celebrate him now now they love him but there was a lot of uh, repairing that had to be done i'll get back to that in a second but uh to finish off the yankee portion of it he gets traded in 1989 and the yankees are yankees feel like they're moving on and uh, to a better place when they're really they're just you know their downward spiral is really just beginning it wouldn't pick up again for several years into the 90s but the trade back to oakland wasn't as universally celebrated, I guess, is maybe wasn't celebrated at all. I mean, on the one hand, you would look at it and go, oh, you've got a team that just lost the World Series the year before on the Kurt Gibson home run because the A's the A's are the best team in baseball. Yeah. And they're dominant and they're killing everybody. And then you're going to add Ricky to it as well. But the actual attitude about the Ricky trade was is Ricky's are Ricky's antics and Ricky's personality going to ruin a good thing? And there's a lot of racism in there as well in terms of how you play the game. I mean, that's why Billy was so important to Ricky. He just let me play. He wasn't so caught up on how I was playing. He was just letting me play and letting me do what I do. And a lot of organizations, in some ways, Ricky was somewhat similar to Dennis Rodman in some ways, whereas if you allowed him to, if you focused on, the personality, it drove you crazy. But if you just let him play, it's pretty damn spectacular. And so Ricky goes to Oakland, June 21st, 1989. And the attitude is that he's lost a step. He's not the same player. You do not give this guy a long-term contract. You really, it's a risk. If you're Oakland, you've got this amazing chemistry. And why do you bring this guy in? And Ricky was only hitting 243, by the way, by the time he get, when he got traded. But it's all fallen apart in New York. And so, in fact, I think that was a Yankees first like 90 loss season in years. And so. But Ricky himself has a lot to prove. He's got to prove. That he can be a championship ball player. He proved that he could steal a bunch of bases. He proved that he could hit home runs from the leadoff spot. He proved that in those moments, he could be the best player in the world but he never proved he was a champion. And what the New York years, the New York years really hurt him in a lot of ways because that's where it was solidified that he wasn't a winner. And if you really want to hurt a ball player, say that to him, you're not a winner. And I, I maintain that what Ricky did when he went back to Oakland in 89 from 89 to midway through 91 is some of the greatest baseball any of us has ever seen. I mean, there's, and I forget which game it was, but the one, the the day game uh, against the Blue Jays in that 89 playoffs. Oh, you know, goodness. On the cover of Sports Illustrated, and, you know, is, you know, 
Uh, he's just running roughshod over the uh, Blue Jays, who themselves are going to be a pretty good team, uh, but ran into the A's at the time. There's one other aspect, and I, I want, I'm sorry, I'm going to backtrack again a little bit. Ricky Henderson is universally uh, referred to as the greatest leadoff hitter of all time because of his combination of power and speed. But there was one essential element to his time in New York that brought the power out. Uh, And I didn't know this. Mm -hmm. Um, Willie Horton, the old Detroit Tiger, was actually one of Billy Martin's coaches in New York. And he's the one who really got that last little bit of oomph out of Ricky Henderson that turned him into speedy leadoff hitter, into powerful leadoff hitter. No question. And it was funny because I was asking Ricky about this. And Ricky would tell me how where it really started was the competitions in batting practice. They'd walk, you know, because you've got this powerhouse Yankee team. And here's Don Baylor hitting home runs to the (laughs) moon. Here's Mattingly uncorking to the moon. Here's Winfield crushing home runs. And Ricky's just as strong as those guys. And Ricky's balls are dropping past second base. They're on a line, but they're not going out. And so Willie Horton essentially taught Ricky what we now refer to as launch angle. Yeah. Here's what's here's what you're not doing. Your your swing is too level. It's ending up waist high. Ball's not going out that way. You need to you need to give yourself a little more degree, just a little bit more arc upward, a little more of an uppercut. And it changed Ricky and it turned him in from it transformed him from a speed guy into a devastating offensive um, leadoff hitter because now he could, he could apply the power. Now you make a mistake to him. Okay. You make a mistake to him and you walk him. But if you make a mistake to him, he takes you out. And so now 81 times he hits the ball out of the ballpark to lead off a game, still a major league record. And so that's a huge, huge piece of who he would become. And I was asking Billy Dean about this when I was working on the book. and, And I said to him, is there a comp for Ricky today? And he said, yeah, it's Trout. That's who he would be. Well, yeah. he, he would be Mike Trout. And today we would emphasize, because Mike Trout's fast. Yeah. He says, but we would emphasize the power. He goes, now, Ricky doesn't have Trout's power, but he's got plenty of power. He's yeah. got enough power to be a 35 homer guy. We would emphasize that. We would probably de-emphasize the speed because of the stolen base risk. And I thought to myself, a Ricky Henderson who can take you out of the ballpark. And Ricky and Billy also said he'd probably be a three hitter and not a leadoff guy anymore. A Ricky Henderson who is going to bat third, who is going to take you deep, but not necessarily steal second and third and steal a hundred bases on you is not quite Ricky Henderson. I mean, so you may, you know, to Billy, you were simply shifting the number columns, but in terms of impact and in terms of what we got to see, he wouldn't have been the same player. Yeah. Because we don't compare Mike Trout to Ricky Henderson. We compare him to Mickey Mantle. That's right. That's yeah. right. And we compare Ricky to Lou Brock and Tim Raines and the rest of them because they were speed first guys. And where Ricky separated. Now, he probably would be closer to Brock because Brock was a three hitter and Brock had tons of power. Brock had more power than people realize, even though Brock yeah. was not a home run hitter. Yeah. But that's probably who Lou Brock would be today, that they would emphasize they would emphasize the power over the speed or maybe even closer. Now, obviously not to somebody like Aaron or Mays because they had enormous power. Ricky didn't have that kind of power. But once again, if you look at Willie Mays' stolen bases or Hank Aaron's, you know, they could steal 30 bases. 
How about the idea of, and, you know, listen, I talked recently with Kostya Kennedy about his Jackie Robinson book. I mean, you know, Jackie Robinson brought a daring on the base pads that nobody had seen, and Ricky Anderson kind of did too. 100%. And Joe Madden talked a lot about this, about how when Ricky was with the Angels, he just had to throw the stopwatch away because Ricky was defying the stopwatch. They, The Angels had a rule that if, if a pitcher got to the plate in one, two or less, 1.2 seconds or less, you weren't stealing. And Ricky beat the stopwatch. <laughs> and I asked Ricky about that. And Ricky was infuriated. He was completely insulted. You're going to tell me a stopwatch is going to determine whether I can beat that guy. I mean, that swashbuckling daring is the roots. You know, the roots of it are competitiveness. Yeah. I'm better than that guy. Yeah. And and Ricky wasn't afraid to. That was part of Ricky's game was to let you know that when he got on first base, there was nobody in the world who was going to be more impactful than he. And he was like, he's probably the last part of the, the daring part of it, the art of the stolen base. Cause as you know, as we've alluded to the, the sabermetric part of it is devalued trying to steal unless yeah. you know, you're going to make it. Well, Ricky knew he was going to make it because he, because it was in his mind, not because of the math equation. There was an art to it and he was going to win the game. Yeah. And the number part of it, he did, you know, he, he bore it out. Yeah. Even though, although the 130 steel year, he was at 75%. I talked to Mike Rizzo about this at the, over at the nationals. And Mike told me that the nationals philosophy is you have to steal it an 85% clip in order for the st stolen base to be a good weapon for it to mitigate the risk. Now, when Ricky was cranking, Ricky was stealing at 86%. Yeah. You look at some of those years, 80 for 90. I think one yeah. year he stole, I think he's, you know, one year he, he stole 107 bases out of, a you know, 125 tries. And so, you know, he was up there, but boy, you're really changing the game. If you're asking someone to steal a damn near 90% in order to make it worthwhile. So and to Ricky's point, sorry, so we need to Ricky's point when I asked him about that, Ricky was also infuriated and also insulted because he says, well, what makes you think that that guy with me standing at first base, that the next two guys are going to get hits to bring me in? Right. Why? Why is that assumed that they're going to come through? They yeah. have less of a chance to get a hit to bring me around than I have to get to second base. A great point. Yeah, that speaks to the confidence of it. Um, has has history done? Ricky justice. I mean, cause a lot of this we're talking about, especially the Yankee years is that you know, he's underappreciated. I mean, his 85 season is one for the ages and we don't talk about it enough. Um, he had a long enough career where he, where he reached milestones and put numbers far out of reach. That we're not going to see people reach for a long time. So yeah. has, has history done him justice? No, I don't think so. And I think that that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do this book. Okay. And we've talked about this. You and I have had this conversation. How many, how many players out there can carry a full narrative? And it's, you know, we, we mangle the word legacy all the time. And we talk about these players as though their numbers are enough. Like, do I want to read a book about Albert Pujols? Absolutely not. Is he one of the greatest players of all time? 100%. Yeah. The same is true of Miguel Cabrera. They, they don't really move me. But are they phenomenal top shelf players? 100%. So it's a really difficult thing to have a player that transcends a Koufax, a Mantle, Aaron, Mays, those guys that carry times for their generation, that speak for their generation. 
with Ricky, he does. And that's what I was trying to get across. I wanted to focus on not just the Ricky stories, not just the anecdotes, not just the quirks and the, the Dizzy Dean satchel page nature of his personality. But this guy obliterated the record book absolutely obliterated the record book 3000 hits 2000 runs 2000 walks a thousand plus stolen bases nobody's ever going to do that again nobody there's one guy who's done it and it's ricky and i think that the you know my favorite my my favorite ricky stat during this during his career was 2002 ricky joins the red sox from 1979 to 2001, he'd stolen more bases than the Red Sox. Yeah. I mean, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's really, really hard, if not impossible to do. All right. So tell me the one Ricky story that you were sad to know wasn't true, that you had de- you part of this is demystifying all the stories. And the one about him not cashing a check is absolutely true. Uh, and, and you've you've got the proof of that. But the is there one story that you were sad to learn wasn't true? Sad to learn? No, because I think all of them are part of the legend. I didn't go into this demystifying with the with the intention of just demystifying because i think that part of the legend part of legend is stuff that never happened that builds the legend it might as well be true right i think the one that everybody else is sad about obviously is the olarud story that it never happened i loved the olarud story for one reason and that was that Robin Ventura was the ringmaster behind the whole thing. One of my all-time favorite players to cover with the driest sense of humor ever, that it was Ventura uh, who really was the guy who, who lit the fire to the point where they ended up having to call Olerud and apologize because they had no idea that this story would have the legs that it has. And it still has them. Olerud said for the book that even today, 25 years later, people still come to him and ask him about the Ricky Henderson story. My thanks again to Howard Bryant, a friend for over 20 years and author of several great books, including The Last Hero, A Life of Henry Aaron. You can buy Ricky, The Life and Legend of an American Original from Mariner Books, available now everywhere. Hey, if you're new here, please check out the 30 with Murdy archive at Odyssey and Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Check out recent conversations like the ones with former Yankee great Paul O'Neill, author Kostya Kennedy, and five-time Olympian Abdi Abdurrahman. Make sure to subscribe and review and all that jazz. Also, check out WFAN's Baseball Insiders pod, too. Until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app.